0: It's very easy to skate through life when you've been through trauma and be like, well, you know what, I'm not following the trend. But the challenge is creating a new trend outside of what you have been exposed to, a a new blueprint.
1: My name is Will Small. I'm a husband and a dad. And for the sake of my family and my community, I want to be a healthy man. Images on magazines would lead me to believe that means having ripped abs and a good paycheck. But I'm not satisfied with that story. Are you? Join me and my guests as we explore the idea of healthy manhood in the modern world. This is the Mankind Podcast. Welcome back, my friends, to Mankind, or welcome for the first time if you're new around here. My guest on this episode is Michael Sanford. If you see a picture of Michael, you might be tempted to place him in a particular box in your mind. He rides horses, lives in a rural setting, and pretty much looks like a cowboy. If you're anything like me, your first thought wouldn't be that Michael is actually a specialist domestic violence counsellor who uses a range of alternative therapies to help children and young people work through their trauma. Which is kind of the whole point, isn't it? We put people in boxes really quickly. We make assumptions constantly without consciously thinking about it. And one of the key ideas Michael talks about in this chat is that of a blueprint. And the need for some of us to create a new blueprint, and the one we were given, isn't actually that helpful. Michael adds such value to this mankind conversation because he brings both a very powerful personal story as well as many years of professional practice supporting others to rewrite their own. By the end of this conversation, I had massive respect and appreciation for Michael, and I have no doubt that you will as well. Well, Michael, it's really great to be able to have a conversation with you this afternoon. We've never met before, but I know a little bit about your story, and you've sent me through just some some of the pieces of your story. And It's really, I guess, a powerful story of somebody growing up and seeing all the ways that manhood or masculinity can be expressed destructively and leave a really negative shadow behind and yet the work that you do now and the, you know the way that your story has unfolded you're really committed to helping young boys and men to become more open and to to kind of stamp out you know violence and kind of destructive forms of masculinity so I'm a huge fan just from what I know about you, but I'd love to just dig into that story. But before we get into the details, how does a given week look in your world? You've got a couple of kids and you work in yeah. a couple of different spaces. Tell us a bit about your weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like to overload, I guess, my weeks. It's, it's certainly busy. I've got two beautiful young kids aged eight and six and an amazing wife. Um, I work full-time hours for an NGO in the local area as a specialist domestic violence counsellor surrounding children so I I work with kids that have experienced or been exposed to domestic and family violence in that role Um, I also run my own private practice outside of those hours and my wife and I have an incredible property that we live on as well so plenty of things on the go
1: yeah beautiful and where where are you geographically
0: so geographically we're in southeast Queensland we're not far from the beautiful place called the Bunyan Mountains so absolutely fantastic area
1: yeah awesome and um, we will get a bit more into how you spend, yeah, your time these days and some of that important work that you do, but I'd love it if you just took me back to a little bit of your story growing up. What was, you know, your childhood like?
0: Absolutely. So um, I guess I'm one of those kids that grew up in a household that um, ended up with separated parents, so divorced parents. Uh, my father displayed uh, many different forms of to- toxic masculinity. Um, where the power and control wheel, if you could go around it, there are a lot of attributes that you could point out saying, yeah, he fits here, here and here. Um, There's a fair bit of substance abuse um, from my biological father's side as well. And I think that that sort of played a part in in, in impeding his ability to really, I guess, parent proactively. It was a very reactive sort of parenting strategy that he sort of put in place. And um, it would be if something occurred, the best way to deal with that would just be to discipline straight away and you know, excessively disciplined without trying to reason or understand, um, my mother got out of that relationship as soon as she could and I guess I could see the effects from a young age that that really had on her and, and from a young age uh, I felt very passionately about trying to protect my mum mm. and it was very, very difficult to do. For a boy, I was uh, four years old when my mum left, I believe it was. And so then I think a lot of the anger was more so directed at the kids and and more so me um, in that situation. Uh, We were with my biological father up until the age of about, I was probably nine years old. So I spent five years in that um, environment where my mum had continued to try to get both me and my sister out. But one of the challenges back then with the whole court system was whoever had the most money was the one that effectively was going to win. and my mum being the one that had to flee the situation, even though she was the one with the career, with the education, she lost everything. You know, she had to start from scratch and and it's very difficult to do that, as you could imagine. And so it wasn't until sort of that nine years of age that I was able to get the possibility, the option to actually reside with my mother. So there was quite a few years there where, you know, um, I got to see the way that this toxic masculinity operated, the way it sort of worked. and it was through fear it was through power it was through control um my father doing the things that he did you know there were random people always rocking up at the house there was always the fear around our surname that we had back then um it was just that you could see that association with the oh i'm dangerous i'm tough and and that can make it really confusing for me um for other young men growing up in a similar situation because as you start to get older you you try to take on that identity because that's, that's I guess, effectively how you survive. Mm. And, and so you think, okay, if I'm tough, if I'm powerful, if I'm strong, if I'm scary, I'm going to get through the world. And so I was really fortunate that um, I had some really good role models in my life. And I got to spend a lot of time with them when I, when I went back to live with my mother. And one of them was my grandfather, um, who's my maternal grandfather, her father. And the other is my stepfather, who is still very much involved in my life today. And my grandfather taught me some very um, strong things. I, I like to say, some "powerful." Powerful is the right word, Some very powerful mm. things when I was a young man, because you know I'd be angry and I'd want to seek out confrontation. I, that, that's how I thought it needed to be done. You know, I couldn't even regulate or understand a lot of the emotions I had, and so everything came out as as anger or frustration, and and it just couldn't come out right. And so my grandfather, being, I guess in my view, he became this pedestal of an idealistic gentleman. He, you know, he took me under his wing and educated me the rights from wrongs, the ways to respond, the different emotions. And and my, my stepfather was was right there beside him in that aspect. He, you know, showed me it was okay to be vulnerable. He showed me it was okay to cry. And that, you know, a, a lot of my childhood, I was I was told I should have been born a girl. I was told I was the weak one. And you know, my, my sister, she is certainly a tough cookie. I don't debate that in any shape or form, but when your whole identity is trying to be shaped around, you've got to be tough, you've got to be strong, mm. and you're constantly being told you're weak or pathetic, it really makes it difficult to truly understand who you are, yeah. which then impacts, your, you know, your whole transition through your your childhood, your adolescence, going into your teenagehood, and, and effectively, you know, into the that whole, I guess, label of manhood. And, yeah. um, you know, w- without my grandfather and my stepfather, two really iconic role mo- models in my life, things could have gone a completely different way for me. I think I'm very fortunate to have that opportunity to have those men in my life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating that you had such, I guess, polar opposites in many ways. And yeah. and it demonstrates the power, which I'm sure we'll talk about, of, um, you know, somebody who tells a different story. That's something I really believe in, right? We grow up with a certain yeah. story and you had a certain, you know, image of what manhood looked like. And then somebody mm-hmm. came and showed you actually there's a different way. There's a different way to process emotions. There's a different way to treat people, different way mm-hmm. to be in the world. You must have had a long and I'm sure ongoing journey of of healing and of finding finding that different way of being who you are. Do you want to share a little bit about some of that journey? Like how did you begin to forge a new identity?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think I really started forging an identity until maybe my early 20 years of age in total honesty. Mm. And um, I went through my teen years and even through my teen years, I, I, I reflecting back, I probably didn't look at women as, as equal as an equal gender. And I guess I looked at them as, oh, this is the way I've been brought up. This is what your responsibilities are. And um, my mum, love her to death, was great at at reminding me that that wasn't the right thing to do. And and I appreciate that every day. And, you know, going into, I guess, my older teens, um, I met my now wife when I was 18 years old. And um, even the early years of our relationship, I probably didn't, actually no I'm not going to say probably I'll I'll own it I didn't show her the appreciation and respect that she deserved as an individual Mm. and and that's really um as I got older it was really difficult for me to look back and actually admit that because then you've got to admit that there's that fault and that vulnerability in yourself again to be like hey man you you stuffed up Mm. and and I did on many occasions you know there was the whole I was young and she was young I used to get jealous and I I used to be like, hey, where are you going out? Who are you going out with? And there was always that uncertainty. And and looking back now, you can see the toxicity with that. But back then, it it didn't feel like it was anything wrong. It didn't feel like it was anything different. Sort of throughout the years, it was that reflection in myself going, hey, this isn't right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. And I can see that it it really impacts on her. And when it impacts on her, it, it affects not just her, but us as a couple and the people around us too. It has that butterfly effect when when one person can really put out a negative energy, I guess, or a a negative attitude in, in this situation. From my early 20s, I really... Set out to try to change who I was. If you talk to my family and friends, they would never say I was a bad person. In, in no way would they say I was a bad person or I did the wrong things. But I didn't necessarily do the right things either. And that's the big difference: is mm. it's it's very easy to skate through life when you've been through trauma and be like, "Well, you know what? I'm not following the trend." But the challenge is creating a new trend outside of what you have been exposed to—a a new, a new blueprint, I guess—and mm. That was always my big um, mission from my early 20s. I'd been given the blueprint of what I didn't want to be like. That's one thing. So I could read that and be like, I don't want to be like this. But the struggle for myself going through my teen years into my early 20s and now looking at the kids that I work, I shouldn't say kids, the young men that I work with, there's no real blueprint of what you should be. mm you know, it's what you shouldn't be, but the challenge is we, we sit back as, as um, individuals, as practitioners, as people in the community and we say, oh, that kid shouldn't be doing that. That kid shouldn't be acting like this way. And oh, how are they ever going to turn out normal with what they've been through? But how often do we actually go, well, you know what, here's hope. Here's a direction. Here's something that we can offer you to create some sort of new life, you know, and it's about showing people that there is a life outside of the blueprint that they know and that they've wanted to avoid. So that they can start piecing that together.
1: There's such a difference, isn't there, between just not being terrible <laughs> and yeah. and actually consciously learning how to be someone who brings good and someone who Absolutely. actually is um, not just not disrespectful, but respectful, right? Like being yeah. neutral is not the aim. But so often that's our whole conversation. And I think it's I think we're in like a moment, I could be wrong, but my observation would be that certain ideas around manhood are being uh, interrogated and deconstructed and challenged, and that is really good and needs to happen. But unless we then also do some reconstruction, some reimagining, putting out, like you've said, some, some hopeful images of what the new blueprint could be, then we only go halfway on the, on the right. important road that we need to go on. So I think we need both. It's important that we dismantle the harmful stuff but we've also got to give our 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 sons. I've got two sons, and our next generation of young boys and men something inspiring to aim towards.
0: Absolutely, you know if you if you look at it like a house renovation, you know you can pull apart the old walls, the old furnishings, and you'll be left with a framework. That framework, unless you've got a vision of what it can be like, will always remain exactly the same. Mm. But if if we as um, I guess men that want to embrace a positive masculinity, a positive a viewpoint or a vision of how we can act as people, not just as men, but as people. If we can help people see that themselves, then that new work can take place.
1: Yeah. For you, like as someone who now works trying to help people imagine that new blueprint, in your own words, what does it look like? What's a positive idea of what manhood could be?
0: A positive idea of what manhood can be for me is people being able to sit in their vulnerability. I think that is one of the biggest challenges. When you look at that whole topic of the man box and we put all these things in the man box, you're know, you not allowed to cry, you're not allowed to be vulnerable, you're not allowed to show that you're hurt, you're not allowed to be weak. I think when we can start breaking that down and we can say to young men, it's okay to be vulnerable, we start to allow these different emotions to express. We start to allow conversations to be had and then we start allowing people to develop in a positive manner. If we continue to push all that stuff back in, effectively all we're doing is restricting growth. And we're restricting it to an area where that toxicity is known. We don't allow that area of growth to move into a, you know, a positive angle.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. And it just I think that's the thing, right? The the thing I keep coming back to is that when we move into greater vulnerability and openness and room for growth, there's not one way to be a man. There's actually Billions, you know, that that each person can become a much more unique version of who they are rather than we just replace one stereotype with a new one.
0: That's exactly right. There there doesn't need to be this set rule or this set makeup. What there just needs to be is an opportunity. Mm. And within that opportunity you can be whatever you want. We just you're looking for those attributes though, where people can just be kind, where people don't feel the need to have that power and control, when there's that sense of equality. Mm. And then whatever comes out of that is perfect in their own right. Whatever blueprint they create is amazing, but they've just got to be able to realise. And, and this is, you know, what I had to do. And then for other young men is that maybe the behaviours that they're displaying haven't always been that beneficial for either them or other people. So if they continue to do the same thing, what outcome will they get is probably that same negative outcome. So how can we work to try to get some positive outcomes occurring?
1: Mm. So you mentioned to me that you live you know, in a small kind of farming town where probably I'm guessing your opinions are not representative of every single person who lives mm-hmm. no. in, in that area. Um, yeah. How do you engage with maybe some of the more uh, traditional expectations or strong views that people have around gender roles and, and what a man should be? Do you see a lot of that and how do you engage with it and maybe challenge it?
0: Yeah, look, my whole region, even not just even the community I live in, the whole region can be very, uh, I, I guess you could label it, we like to label it a little bit old school in the sense that there's particular gender roles that people believe they should have and shouldn't have. And look, I learned early on, this, you know, we're talking 10 years ago when I, when I started this work that I could argue black and blue in my face, trying to prove a point to people and, and try to rationalise and try to explain and then I learned rather than trying to prove a point to other people, maybe I should just lead by example. Mm. And and if I can lead by example, maybe that'll influence someone else to lead by example, and hopefully that butterfly, that flow and effect will you know will occur and will spread. And that's certainly something that I believe is happening around here. We, we've got a great cluster of people that want to see change that that want to see that toxic masculinity um, you know start to be broken down, so that we can have. You know, healthy relationships, health, healthy individuals moving forward. And because through that, we don't just have positive relationships, we have positive growth in community as well. And you know, effectively, it, it reduces the impacts that it has on our youth growing up, which will allow that really strong work to take place to help shape as we grow older. But it's about that self-reflection too. Like when I first came to the community I live in now, for example, you know I look back and I think to myself, um, maybe I didn't fit in initially. And, you know, I, I guess I'm a bit different in that uh, I come from a farming community where I am now. I'm not a great farmer, happy to throw my hands up and admit that. Um, you know, my wife and I have you know, plenty of horses and we love our horses, but you know, I don't farm cattle. I don't run, run a dairy. I don't do any of those sort of things. And one of the challenges was all these amazing, incredible men out here. They're fantastic with their hands, they're fantastic on the farm they can get things done. And again, not one of my strengths. I can't pull things apart and put them back together in the in the you know, drop of the hammer. I'm, I'm with right. you. I'm totally yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But I guess one thing I could do was I can talk and, and I can listen. And throughout the time, I think that's been beneficial because it has been a space where people are able to realise that maybe just because I don't do one particular thing doesn't mean that I'm not worth it. Mm-hmm. or it doesn't mean that I'm not of any kind of value. But the big part too was I had to stop and think, well, is this what's actually occurring or am I reflecting that onto myself? Mm-hmm. Did, I not, did I not feel worthy because, like I said, I couldn't do the hands-on stuff as well as them. I couldn't do the farming stuff as well. So I think there was a bit of, uh, I guess, give and take in the fact that maybe I was looked at differently because I'm a, I'm a counselling male that works predominantly with children. And I love working with children. I think it's a great area to work in, which maybe is a bit unusual for that um, typical, stereotypical man that it's normally the female job. You know, that's what we were brought up, you know, being advised or educated around. And so I think um, it's been a bit of a challenge in that concept, but it was a challenge for me too, to realise, you know what, it's okay to be me and it's okay for other people to have their strengths, whatever they may be. And that maybe my strength within this community, within this region, is that I can be a proactive male that wants to create change and use my voice to help do that.
1: Yeah, I love the, the, just the image that you gave at the beginning there about, you know, it's so tempting often to get into an argument and to, to kind of assert our correctness in a certain viewpoint that doesn't change anybody's mind. It often just kind of, you know, reinforces where people already are. But that just sense of leading by example uh, is huge. And then I also love that I think it's so true that there is probably a reality in people maybe judging us if we're not stereotypically masculine, but it's so true that we also probably project, we probably project a lot of expectations in our mind that aren't necessarily there. And we might be surprised when we actually talk to people who we're kind of stereotyping just as much as we think they're stereotyping us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So, tell me a bit more about, you know, yeah, the work that you do with, with children and with young men now and um, yeah. what that looks like, you know, the kind of actual practical work that you do helping people to, you know, through some of the the things that we're talking about.
0: Absolutely. So, on my, my day-to-day job is, like I said, it's a, um, a specialised counsellor working with kids of trauma, so both male and female. And I think one of the biggest challenges when I first got this role uh, was being a male counsellor in that field. and. You know, 80% of, of perpetrators, unfortunately, or people using violence are men. And, you know, there's this massive debate about, oh, but men are victims too. And we see it all the time in social media with the, the arguments back and forth. Unfortunately, even when men are victims, predominantly men are still the people using violence against their brothers, their sons, their yeah. fathers. So being a male in this field was was initially a challenge. But over the past few years, we've been able to turn it into a strength. Because like what I said about being in the community and one of the biggest um, attributes I can bring is that role modeling. You know, We can talk about every kind of therapy under the sun, any kind of training I've ever had. But the biggest thing that I can use is by being present Mm. and by being genuine and by listening and by talking and engaging. Because um, the therapies, yeah, they come into play when there's certain trauma that we want to work with. But a lot of the time, it's about people feeling safe. It's about people feeling comfortable. When they're around those different genders and it's about showing people that you know whilst they've had a really really rough time with that male gender that that's not the stereotype of of all men Mm. and that they're that the gender doesn't define who a person is and it's same with with young men it's showing them that you know what i can come here and i can listen to you and and i understand that you've had a a life where your father might have been violent to your mother or to your family what I'm showing you right now is we can actually resolve conflict or disagreements just by talking and no therapy is needed there. It's just that conversation. And, um, you know, we, we, I do a lot of these fantastic alternative, they call them alternative because they don't fit the mainstream side of things like um, Sam play therapy, interactive drawing therapy. In my private work, I do, you know, equine psychotherapy, these are all different um, modalities that allow people to express without actually having to voice what's happened. Mm. Now, that, that revisiting trauma can be really challenging for a, for a young individual. And so these modalities are really good to express it, to start getting some of that trauma and that some of that hurt out. And that is, you know, we, we work alongside that, that engagement, that um, being present, that active listening, and together with that therapy, we start, you know, progressing forward.
1: I, I really hear in what you're saying, and I, and I love it, that, you know, half of the work is not about what you say or what you do. It's about who you are. And it's about who you bring into that space as somebody that is present and, and centred and, and sort of, you know, secure within that kind of a healthy identity. And I think that's just something that we should all be taking on, right? That if we actually want to make a difference in any area, one of the biggest things we can do is actually bring a healthy version of ourself into where we, where we enter. Having said that, I am interested in some of these kind of alternative therapies just because I've actually, yeah, not seen them in practice or really heard much about them. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about the sand play therapy and the equine psychotherapy. What, do they, what does
0: Absolutely. it look like
1: if somebody does that?
0: Yeah, well, look, sand play therapy, I, my kids like to joke about it, saying that I bring my kitty litter tray into work with me. And so my, my sand tray is literally a, I guess when you, when you go to the cheap shops or to Bunnings, you can see those narrow plastic containers. Um, so they're sort of fairly wide, but quite narrow. And, and so I've got a few of those. And then I have about three to 400, we call them pieces. Um, most people would call them toys or figurines, but we like to call them pieces. Um, and so what they do is sand play it's like, I guess, a symbolization or a symbol symbolism version of counselling, and a lot of the kids they don't actually have to say anything. I-, I love it with adults because it gets adults talking about things they didn't know were actually a problem. Mm. But with kids, they pick these different pieces when I when I introduce them to the the sand tray. My my very simple introduction is. You know in in front of you you're going to notice a lot of different pieces and all i want you to do is have a quick look over them and if one stands out to you i just want you to grab it and put it in the tray without thinking too much about it and so they build these absolutely amazing representations in Mm. the tray and the way that sandplay works is about the the way that the figurines look at each other the way that they may be standing lying down the power with the energy within the tray um you know for example working with a male perpetrator, I shouldn't say male perpetrator, a a young male who was using violence and Mm. and was labelled a perpetrator by the court, he um, came to me and he said, I don't see what the issues are. I I don't see how I'm doing anything wrong. And we got him in the tray and the first thing he did was he picked this um, figurine up that was a baby, put it in the tray and then picked this other figurine up which was an elephant and put it over the top of the baby. And he sort of stepped back and went, oh, I I don't know why why, why they did that. And I said, well, let's just explore that. Let's talk about that. Who's the elephant? And he said, well, the elephant's actually my father and the baby's actually me. It wasn't anything to do with his current relationship. And as we explored it and, you know, we we do this thing called somatic awareness. So instead of counseling in the the thought pattern, we want to know what's going on feelings-wise. And so we're able to work out that it was, you know, counseling, I guess, what we call your inner child. And there was all this trauma that he had at the childhood and that trauma was simply just being reflected now in his older years. Mm. You know, it was something that he'd carried and was now, you know, mirroring in his behavior. And so we know that we need to do work around healing that part of his life as well, not just dealing with the present. You know, we, we need to go back and, you know, get to the family of origin and deal with that trauma to be able to allow him to heal.
1: Mm.
0: And so I guess, you know, it's, it's really powerful in that. You could have one figure, you could have two figures, you could have 50 figurines in this tray. And it's certainly one of my favourite modalities that I've ever learned because, you know, I can use it with kids, I can use it with adults and and there's no limitation around how it actually works. But it's been very powerful um, when working with young kids who have been in traumatic domestic violence situations. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, and look, it's very similar with the equine side of things. And the equine has a very um, what they call gestalt therapy background and it's saying it's very much about the somatic awareness and, what I as a practitioner or what anyone as a practitioner may notice in the individual. So they might go out and work with a particular horse and as they're working with the horse, they may be patting it in a downward motion, but they might be patting it and they might start smiling. And so you, you just recognise it. You say, look, I, I noticed when you were patting the horse, I could see that you were smiling at the same time and they said, it felt nice. Okay, well, what does nice feel like for you? And it starts getting them to actually understand how that fits in their own body as well. So it's great with young kids that everything comes out as anger or sadness or, or joy. It starts to diversify the different emotions that maybe they are feeling and how they can relate to that outside of the paddock, the arena or the horse yard to their everyday life.
1: I, I want some of that. You know, I listen to that <laughs> yeah. and I, I know that for me, um, you know, I sort of own this. It's a self-awareness piece but I just try and solve every problem in my head. I'm very much a, a kind of mental, cerebral processor, and I'm constantly kind of crunching scenarios in my head. So, anything that actually gets me into my body, I find is it doesn't feel as natural, but it actually helps to open up some of those new understandings and awareness of oh, there's some deeper stuff here that I can't just crunch with my thoughts.
0: Exactly right. And look, even for me as a as a practitioner, I don't know um, how many times I went to these trainings. And felt very uncomfortable with with recognizing my own emotions and and so if you think individuals that are trained to to be able to feel that way, how it can be difficult for us. Imagine how difficult it is for a kid who's experienced trauma, and their whole way of survival is to try to shut emotion off. Mm. And so it's really powerful when you when we start to see um, success. And I, I don't really look at success as the kids now, you know, a grade A student. I look at success as the kid got out of bed this morning. Mm. The, the client, the child, the um, person who I'm working with went to work today. They went to school today. You know what? They smiled. You know, it's the little things that you start to build upon. And, and that's the challenge with, with trauma is um, we see a lot of people that come for support. The people around them, the stakeholders want results straight away. Mm. And it's really hard to, you know, break down a lifetime of trauma in a matter of only a few moments. But if, if you can see any little reward, you can build from that.
1: I think that's really helpful to reframe what we think of as as a positive outcome and mm-hmm. and to actually be realistic. I mean, I know that uh, in my personal experience of therapy, which has been really helpful, one of the things that my counsellor has shared with me on various occasions is that actually when you're doing this kind of work, slow is fast. That's it's right. better to go slow and actually, you know, kind of do effective work rather than trying to rush over something and you just kind of loop back to it again and again.
0: Exactly right. Over the the decade or so I've been doing this there's been so many positives and so many good outcomes and in saying that you know um, not every every outcome is a success story. Mm. It's it's certainly a major, major topic to tackle. Um, But one, you know, I've got a couple of young men and and one in particular was a young man who'd been in a very, very violent situation. And out out of that, he'd become very reclusive. Um, Mute, didn't like to talk, uh, refused to go to school. And um, so they were brought into me and I started seeing them when they were about 11 years old. I think it would have been, and because there were concerns around education at that point, with you know not engaging, not speaking, not being able to progress, and it was really hard to, I guess, gauge where I was going to go. Because you know, as a practitioner too, you have this sense of I want to help these people, but exactly what you said, you can't rush it, because if you rush it, you're only going to have to come back and start to repair the work that you've actually then created on top of the situation. And so with this young man. For the first couple of sessions we just sat there. there there really wasn't anything else done it was we just sat there and his mother told me about some music that he liked and so we got some of the music playing and we just sat there and i sort of bopped away to try to show a bit of an interest to it and we got to a few sessions in and i said to him you don't have to say anything to me other than one one little um answer if you could i said would you like to have a go at my sand tray and he sort of looked at me like i was a bit of a weirdo for asking him that sort of question <laughs> Bit, I think the curiosity got the better of him, and he, and he said yes. And um, he did one sampling and there was so much emotion that came out. And for the first time ever in a session, he had cried, and you know he he cried for near probably thirty minutes during that session. And um, the next day, the mother had run me and said, um, "Last night was the first night he slept in his bed by himself, and he'd gone back to his own bed. This is mm. an eleven-year-old, and." So we sort of, in, instead of having a large amount of space between the sessions, the mother had requested that we try to get um, at least every, every week, and if there was a possibility, just a couple of follow-up sessions with him. I think he went on to do, off my head, seven sand play sessions. So I normally do about six to 10, and this was about seven. And over the seven sand play sessions, the actual sand tray looked very familiar to the previous one, but different pieces were now not, no longer existing in that tray. And over that period of seven weeks, the young man started to, to verbalize more and started to talk more. But he never actually talked about so much about the trauma, but talked more about his future. And that was really interesting for me because um, a lot of young people I've worked with, with trauma and other practitioners can relate to this is sometimes there's not a filter and they're quite open to tell you about what's happened and it sort of spirals and Mm. and continues to go. Whereas this young man, it was very intriguing in that he didn't verbalize too much about the trauma. We sort of, he, he would touch on it, but he would say, but that's not what I'm going to be. And this is how I'm not going to act. And so I'd prompt him and I'd say, okay, Tell me about who you're going to be. Tell me about how you're going to act. And that's part of trying to create and paint that image a little bit to, you know, that canvas for them to to put the new blueprint on. And this was quite a few years ago now, when now the young man is grown up. He um, has a child uh, himself, one of the most incredible fathers I I think I've ever met, absolutely loving and doting, beautiful Mm -hmm. partner. he's actually designing applications for like mobile phone companies, I believe, and earning a lot more than me. So doing absolutely fantastic, but he has to deal with people on a daily basis as part of that. And he's communicating clearly. He's mm. able to express um, genuinely how he feels and what he requires. And I think for that young man, it was just that right time. It was that, that opportunity to just express it in a way that felt right for him. Mm. And, you know, I've got many different stories of young young men that have been in very, very traumatic situations that have been able to recover and grow on to live fantastic, influential, positive lives. Mm. Um, you know, I've got another young man who's currently living down in Sydney who has had a lot of violent upbringing. He is growing up to be one of the most incredible youths that I've got to work with. Um, I've got some other teenagers that are, you know, living in Townsville that have got their own business that again grew up in significant trauma of like what these young people show to me is that the blueprint can be changed mm. and i think the reason why i'm so hopeful about it is because i've been able to do that myself and so when you know that it can be done yourself you become extra a little bit passionate about supporting other people to know that they can reach that goal as well
1: mm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, not only your own story of transformation, but the ways that you've been able to witness that in other people. And, yeah, I just want to thank you so much for sharing openly and honestly about both your experiences and, and the others that you've been a part of. You're most welcome. I'd love to come up and do some Sam play with you and, and do all this <laughs> stuff with you. It sounds so good. But a-
0: absolutely. For, um, really
1: for people, people listening, you know, yeah. I'd love for, for you just to share maybe any kind of next steps for, for anybody who's listening to this, something that somebody can go and do that might be a next step in their own uh, healing or growth uh, or, or kind of establishing a new blueprint? What would be some of your kind of final practical words of advice?
0: Yeah. Look, anyone that has been through trauma, I like to, uh, I guess, put the words down that it's like creating a 10,000-piece puzzle in your head. And what we need to do for someone that's been through trauma is you need to find I guess that extra coffee table. And I like to call ourselves as practitioners that extra little coffee table because the image sometimes it can be there, it can be in your head, but you just don't have the clarity. You don't have the capability or the space to put it all back together. Mm. So I guess from a person who is vulnerable, who's been through the trauma, there are options out there for you to be able to unload a few pieces so that you can get that clarity back. And then you can bring the pieces back in and the image will be exactly the way that you need it to be. And for those of us out there that are working with these children and working with people that have gone through trauma, one of the best things I've ever heard by a, a young man by the name of Josh Shipp out of America is every single child is only one caring adult away from being a success story. And mm. that's something that I operate under every day. And I think if we continue to do so, we're going to allow these kids that uh, have gone through traumatic situations to heal and go on and build a, a future that we can all be proud of.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael, for your time today and uh, keep doing the important work that you're doing. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to hear from you on Mankind
0: Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I got some bad news and some good news, friends. The bad news is that this is the last episode of Season 2 of Mankind, meaning that if you are a truly faithful listener, and have exhausted the back catalogue of these conversations, then there's going to be a little break now. The good news is we're already talking about what Season 3 will look like when it comes out in 2021. We're also discussing some pop-up conversations or digital events between now and then to keep the connection going. Of course, if you are a new listener or haven't listened through to all the episodes, there are now a whole stack of these incredible chats that you can go back and listen to. I know many people are just discovering this podcast now and it's really exciting to hear how these conversations are helping people to think about some of these ideas in new ways and open up their own conversations and that has always been my heart, that you would not just listen to these episodes and leave it at that, but that you would discuss these ideas with the people in your life, add your perspective, ask questions, become a part of the conversation. We have a growing Facebook group filled with people who are doing exactly that so if you want to join us search up Mankind Podcast Community on Facebook and uh, get involved in that group it's becoming a really awesome and encouraging space. Now this may be a little self-indulgent but I'm going to wrap up this episode with a poem. I am a poet before I am a podcaster and through the COVID season I've really missed sharing poetry and connecting with living breathing people in the same room. And so I thought I would whip out a poem that is uh, from an event last year. You can kind of hear people in the room and imagine uh, maybe that we are there together. But it's a poem that really summarizes my heart in making this podcast and having these conversations. It is a poem for my son, Leo, who is almost three years old. And when I think about what the future looks like for him, it is my hope that it is a living answer. To some of the questions, the ideas, and the thoughts that we discuss on Mankind Podcast. So here is my poem for Leo. For Leo, my son, named after Lion, may your roar be unleashed. You were not made to be silent. May your roar be unleashed, but may your claws stay in hiding. This world, my son, It does not need more fury-fueled fist-fighters, lighting flex-muscle fires, burning more and more bridges. It needs the carefully composed stitches of those who will unleash their inner riches on repurposing the discarded, refurnishing the disheartened, refurbishing this thick darkness to let light shine through. Leo, be furiously gentle. Be unstoppably humble. Be quietly courageous, be a new kind of lion. You were not made to be silent, so speak up to violence. Not just for the rush of being defiant, but to remind this world what once defined us, bearing the very image of the maker's likeness. Leo, be wild, be untamed and unbridled, but remember that true strength is restrained and not often cited. It's the 90% you don't see of the iceberg. It's the churning below of the duck's quiet legwork. It's every harsh word that doesn't make it from your brain to your tongue. It's the unseen powerhouses like your heart and your lungs. It's having the power to crush and choosing to forgive. It's being crushed by power and choosing to forgive. Leo, my lion, be humble, not giant. I gift you the name small. Do not try to hide it. Let me let you in on a secret. The whisper in the quiet. The bigger you try to pretend that you are, the larger the doubts you will carry like scars. But when you own that you are just one of the current seven billion in one snapshot of existence on the pale blue dot, and yet here you are right now on the pale blue dot with that glorious spirit in your respiratory system, you will feel enormous and tiny, And it will all be a gift. That is the thing. It is all a gift. All grace. All beyond your control. So you don't always have to pretend like you're in control. Leo, my lion, may you be gloriously, enormously, victoriously small. But do not be silent. May the world hear your roar. Thank you. Thank you. I get to share that poem with a lot of young people, but really it doesn't matter how old you are, the theme of that poem is something that I would want to share with every person I meet, which is that it's okay to be small. It's okay to feel like you're not such a big deal, because none of us are, really. In the grand scheme of things, you're not a big deal, and neither am I. Get over it. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a voice that is worth sharing and a voice that can make a change. So share your voice. This podcast has been proudly brought to you by the Central Coast Council and developed by Lead by Story. Help us grow the conversation by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode around on your social media. I'd love to hear from you. What's your experience of manhood in the modern world? Drop me a message on Instagram or at leadbystory.com.au and let's have a chat. Catch you next time on Mankind.